Well, as we go through life, all of us recognize uh, significant acts of sacrifice and devotion. We might hear about a soldier who gives his limbs or his life for his comrades. We might hear about a, a mother who gives up her dreams because her child is very sick. And these things are very moving to us when we hear things like that. In fact, there's one in our congregation that uh, you may not be aware of. In your worship folder this morning, there's a prayer request. Midge and Tom Hennig's brother-in-law passed away a couple of weeks ago at age 62. His liver was failing and he needed a liver transplant and couldn't get it in time. That's very sad, but many of you wouldn't know that five years ago, Midge gave her brother-in-law one of her kidneys. So she gave him five years of life that he wouldn't have had. And that was obviously done at pain and cost to her. And those are the kind of things that we recognize and we honor in life. Now, in the passage that we just read, there is some significant act of devotion that goes on. But I know that for many, it's very hard to understand what is it? What exactly has been done that is so important? But you know, you come to the end, and it says the elders and the people in the city gate, they rose up and blessed Boaz. And you know, may, may uh, this woman who is coming into your home be like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. And they invoke the name of, of women in the history of their people, praying that she would have that kind of impact. And, and then uh, for Naomi, this widow, whose two sons have died, and only Ruth, one of her daughter-in-laws, is, is left. And she's from a foreign people who attaches herself to Ruth and to Ruth's people. The, the, the women of the community uh, bless Boaz for what he has done and, and honor him. He'll be a nourisher of your old age. You have a redeemer in your life. I mean, something really significant has happened, but for us, it, it uh, easily passes us by and we don't understand it. I'd like to think about it for a few minutes because I think there's some incredibly important lessons here for us today in terms of what it, of what it means to be uh, loyal to God and loyal to other people, especially in times of spiritual decline. The whole book of Ruth is about uh, the time when the judges ruled, and during that time there was decline spiritually. Uh, the, the cause of God was languishing in the land, and good things weren't happening, and people were acting in ways that were uh, not honoring to God or helpful to each other. And the book opens with the words, in the days when the judges ruled, and it tells a story about two people who in that kind of society at that time acted faithfully. They showed uh, steadfast love, covenant loyalty in the midst of a society that wasn't doing that. Now, in your hand you have a Bible. You might have just opened it up. And in the Bible there are two parts. You might be aware of that, Old Testament and New Testament. And I need to give you a little bit of understanding about the Old Testament and the New Testament, how those two parts relate if you want to gather anything from this passage. I was uh, reading a book from the 1800s, and this woman said about her pastor, someone asked her, do you like your pastor? And she said, well, he, he, uh, I really like him, but he spends so much time setting the table that by the time he puts the food out, I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> Some of you feel that way about me, and I'm aware of that. I try to work on that, but you're going to have to give me freedom for about eight minutes or so to explain some background to you in which this passage begins to come to light. 
Oh, sorry. There we go. You need to understand some basic ideas that are found in the Bible. Uh, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and other words to use to describe that is Old Covenant and New Covenant. A covenant is an arrangement between God and his people as to how they'll relate to one another. It describes the relationship. And the Bible tells us about a number of covenants, but the important ones are what we call the Old Covenant and what Scripture calls the New Covenant. And uh, the Old Covenant is centered uh, on God's Old Testament people on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel who come to Mount Sinai and God establishes with them a covenant and a relationship and gives them the law. The New Covenant is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ who established the New Covenant with his people in the upper room in Jerusalem on the last night of his life. And he sealed it the next day in his blood when he died on the cross. We live under the New Covenant, and there are some differences between the two, but you need to understand the New Covenant is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. They are related to each other. The one fulfills the other. Now, there are two concepts I want to think about. One is the kingdom of God, and the other is the people of God. Those are phrases that both the Old Testament and the New Testament use. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament, where we're reading right now, was um, a nation and a faith community combined into one, and they had a written revelation from God that we now call the Old Testament. They had three things that are important to recognize. As a nation, they had a territory, a land that had been given them. As God said to Abraham, to your offspring, your descendants, I will give this land. So that had been given to them by promise. They also had a national, cultural, ethnic identity as a people. So uh, when God established his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So he gave to Abraham a promise that he would have descendants and his physical descendants would have a cultural, ethnic identity, and they would live in the land. And then later we were told they would have a central place of worship that God would choose, and that was Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where they built the temple, and they put the Ark of the Covenant, you know, this chest over covered with gold with angels over it that was put in the inner room of the temple and represented the footstool of God, where God was literally present among his people. In the New Covenant... Those things are fulfilled in Jesus, but we would uh, need to understand that the kingdom of God as it now exists is no longer a nation and a faith community, although that nation and faith community is included in it. The kingdom of God is an international faith community. We also have a written revelation from God, which is the same as Israel, the Old Testament, with the addition of what we call the New Testament, the writings about the uh, coming of Jesus Christ and the teachings and the establishment of, of the church movement. We have no territory. In fact, uh, we are told that uh, we uh, do not here have a lasting city, but we look for a city that is to come. So we don't have any physical territory as um, the people of God in the world today. There's no country that is God's country that he owns and his people live in altogether. We have no territory. We have no national, cultural, ethnic identity. In fact, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 
praises Jesus. It's the host of heaven praising him. And they say, because with your blood, you ransomed for God people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So when we are gathered around the throne, we'll be gathered from all of the ethnic communities of the world, all of the cultures, all of the nations of the world we represented there. And we also have no earthly sanctuary. We are called to worship in spirit and in truth. The temple has been destroyed on earth, and there is no central place of worship. That includes Grand Rapids, for those of you who are Dutch Reformed. It is not the, uh, it's not the central place of worship. Now, that's important to understand. Let's think for just a minute about the people of God. The people of God under the Old Covenant were, and this follows from the last thing, the physical descendants of Abraham who believe in the promises. The people of God were never just the physical descendants. That didn't automatically grant to them status as the people of God, except outwardly as being part of the nation. But it was the people who are physical descendants of Abraham and believed the promises given to Abraham, which included the promise of a Messiah. And it also included a second group, much smaller in number, but it included those who voluntarily joined them by fully embracing their national and spiritual identity. That's like Ruth. In order to be a part of the people of God under the Old Covenant, you had to uh, not only recognize but become part of the national ethnic identity that was Israel. And when you did that, you were counted as among the true Israel, the people of God. Now, under the New Covenant, that has changed. The first remained the same. The people of God today are made up, very explicitly taught in Scripture and a number of places, of the physical descendants of Abraham, whom we today call Jewish people. That term was not found until the very end of the Old Testament. But the physical descendants of Abraham, Israel, who believe in Jesus. That is, they accept that Jesus fulfilled the promises given to Abraham. And it also includes the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Gentiles, most of us in this room, non-Jewish people, who believe in Jesus. In a sense, the makeup of the people of God was the same under the Old Covenant and the New. The difference is uh, both in number, under the Old Covenant, the physical descendants outnumbered those who joined with them. That's evident. Under the New Covenant, the physical descendants of Abraham, what we today call the Jewish people, are outnumbered by the number of Gentiles who are brought into the church. And the other difference is this. Under the New Covenant, you don't have to become a part of Israel in order to be a part of the people of God. Now, Israel and the Gentiles have to both believe in Jesus. We come into relationship with God in the same way through faith in Christ. Now, that's just a little background, and it's important because it gives you background to this passage that we'll think about in a minute. So let me just leave this one up there. This is, uh, in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God, a territory, a nation with a temple. And the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, people of God, physical descendants of Abraham, and those like Ruth who voluntarily joined with them and made themselves a part of the nation. Now, there's one other concept I need to tell you about, and this one is really difficult. But in order to understand this, you need to think about the importance of the physical descendants of Abraham and the land. Those two things go together. Remember, to your descendants, I will give this 
land God promised Abraham. The land and the people are so important in a way that it's very difficult for us to understand today. Every tribe was given a huge piece of territory equivalent to a state in the United States in the Old Testament. And within the tribe, every clan and every extended family and every individual family was given a piece of land, in the beginning rather large. And that land was theirs forever. As long as the nation stood there, that land belonged to them and to their family. You, you couldn't, the tribe could never lose its land because even if you sold it to someone else because you're impoverished, it only could be sold for 50 years because every 50 years there was something called the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all debts ended. In the year of Jubilee, all land returned to its original owner. So in reality, if you bought someone's land because they became poor or they just wanted to sell it, you could only lease it, we would say. You're leasing it for a period of time. And the amount that you're going to pay is dependent on how close or how far away you are from the year of Jubilee. You're going to pay more if you're going to have it in your family for 50 years before it reverts to the original owners. You're going to pay less if you only have 10 years left. Now, that's what is happening in the book of Ruth. Um, this land has been given. And what's so important is that land stay within a family. But there is one way a family could lose their land forever. The tribe couldn't lose it. But a family could lose their land, and that would be how? They died off by having no heirs. If you had no children, male or female, because women could in certain circumstances if there were no sons and inherit the land, if you had no children whatsoever, the land is gone, and the land passes to your nearest relative. Now, that was considered in the Old Testament such an incredible disaster for someone to die childless in a way that's almost impossible for us to understand. Most of us in the modern world spend a lot of our waking energy, if we're married, thinking about how not to have children. <laughs> you know? Ancient world, total opposite. Wasn't like that at all. Okay, so just try to get your minds around that idea that people wanted to have heirs. They didn't want to lose their land that had been given to them in perpetuity, forever, as long as the nation stood. And so they came up with something. It actually is found in the very beginning of the Bible. It predates the law, but it was written into the law, the constitution of the nation of Israel, called Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage comes from the word levir in Latin, which means brother. Leverite marriage is if a man dies with no heirs, male or female, no children, his closest relative, his oldest brother beginning with and then down the line, then passing to first cousins, his nearest relative could marry his wife and raise up a descendant or more than one. And those who were born did not belong to the brother. They were not his heirs. They were the original man's heirs who died. Now to us, that just raises real. You know, when I married my wife, she has five sisters. And I wasn't interested in any of them, and I'm not to this day, you know. It's like, I don't even want to think about that whole concept. <laughs> but, but I want you to understand, it was, it was designed as a way to perpetuate the land staying in the family. Now, that's what you have in this passage. In this whole story, you have Elimelech and his wife Naomi go to Moab. And, and they sojourn there. While they're there, they, we don't know, they either leave their land 
or they sell it for a period of time to someone that will revert to the family in the year of Jubilee. We don't have any idea which. But when Naomi comes back now bereft of her husband and her two children with the responsibility for this daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a Moabite, but Ruth has converted. She has declared allegiance to the God of Israel and the people of Israel and done exactly what it says here, voluntarily joined them by fully embracing their national and spiritual identity. She now returns, and they have this piece of land, but there are no descendants. So when she dies, the land is going to pass to the nearest relative. And that's where the whole thing we've looked at the last few weeks about Boaz, you know, and Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. But Boaz reveals at the end of chapter 3, as we saw last week, that there's one closer than him. He's probably a cousin of some type. And there's one who is closer, probably older in age, first in line, to, to redeem this whole thing. And so what happens in chapter 4 is he, show, he goes to the city gate, all matters of legal concern were handled in the city gate. You had to have 10 people, kind of like a jury we think of. It had to be 10 men gathered in the city gate, elders of the people. And he gathers them together to form kind of a, a, a judgment place. And people are gathered around. And he calls the nearest redeemer, the, the closest relative. And, and the redeemer, by the way, you can think of him as a family protector. He's like the person designated by God to protect the rights of each individual family. Almost everyone, if you stop to think about it, would have had some responsibility as a family protector in society because they have relatives, brothers or sisters that they're responsible for in various ways. Here's the closest redeemer. And Boaz says to him, sit down here, friend. It's interesting when he says friend. It's, it's an odd phrase that means something like Mr. So-and-so, Joe Blow. Sit down here, Joe Blow. Well, he, he's saying that because... The narrator doesn't even want you to know the name of this person. What he does is so disgraceful. The, the, the man sits down and Boaz says, Naomi came back with no heirs and she's decided to sell her land, which she could do because at her death it was going to pass to the nearest relative anyways automatically. So she could choose to sell it and at least she'd have something to live on. She's going to sell her land. And the man says, Great, I'll buy it. And then Boaz adds, oh, by the way, Naomi has a daughter-in-law who is now counted as a full Israelite, and under the law, you have a responsibility to seek to raise up children for uh, Malan, her husband, who is dead. And, and it's twice in the passage, it's so important, that he uses this, these words twice. He says in verse uh, Five, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And you see how important that is? The, the whole reason for this, it's not romantic love for Ruth. That may have been there, I don't know. That's not the point of the passage. The point is, he, he was responsible, they were responsible as the nearest relatives, the family protectors, to perpetuate the name of the dead. And the Redeemer said, oh, wait a minute, I can't do that because it might impair my inheritance. Now, here's what he means. Let's say that the land was worth $100,000. She had this large piece of property. He could buy it. He was willing to spend $100,000 as long as it became his forever. If it became his, then he already had a family and heirs. They would get it in the end. He didn't mind spending the $100,000 as long as his, 
his heirs got this piece of land that they didn't have originally. But if his responsibility was to pay the $100,000 and raise up a descendant, his children would never get the land. In other words, he'd spend $100,000 and he wouldn't get anything out of it in the end. Somebody else's children, so to speak, would inherit the land. So he says, it would impair my inheritance. It would hurt my children. The $100,000 is more important to me than being faithful to God. And so Boaz says, I, I will redeem Ruth. And, and he goes ahead and they do this thing where they pass the sandal and all of that. Uh, which becomes like the legal document. You keep the person's sandal in your possession. This is proof that he passed on the inheritance to me of this land and the responsibility for it. And, and Boaz is very clear. You are witnesses this day, verse 9, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and all that belonged to Elimelech's two sons, Kilian and Malon, who died, also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And he adds these words, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. In other words, what Boaz did was he took responsibility not just to get the land, to redeem the land, so it wouldn't be lost to the, to the clan, he redeems the land, and he takes responsibility for the woman to raise up an heir who would not be his heir, wouldn't be counted as his child, would be counted as Malin's child. And that person, if there's one, would inherit the entirety of the land, and it would pass. He would perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance so that um, the name of the dead would not be cut off from the gate of his native place. Uh, that line would continue and it wouldn't end. Now, what I want you to note that is so important in this passage is that what Boaz is doing from the perspective of the writer is he's showing this word steadfast love, the Hebrew word chesed. It means loyalty to the covenant, faithfulness to God and to God's people. He's showing it in two directions. He's showing steadfast love to God's kingdom in the literal sense of God's kingdom at that point is a territory. When people in the Old Testament talk about the kingdom of God, they mean the land of Palestine, the, the place where Israel was with the central sanctuary that was on the mountain, Mount uh, Zion, where Jerusalem was. He was showing literal faithfulness to the old covenant kingdom of God by buying back the land. And then he was not only showing faithfulness to God's kingdom, he was showing faithfulness to God's people. Because God's people were, they were the physical descendants of Abraham who believed the promises and those who voluntarily joined them, like Ruth. And in order to perpetuate the name of that family and to allow that family to own that land forever as it was designed, as long as the nation stood at least, he was going to do what was against his best interests. And what I mean is the passage implies that he is older than Ruth. The passage implies that he already has a family, that he already has enough uh, uh, possessions that he's able to spend the money, the $100,000 or whatever it is, to buy the land. But that $100,000 is just going to be money that he spends and he never gets it back, presuming that Ruth has a child. And the 
Promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled. But you see, he's showing faithfulness in an, in an incredible way to the kingdom of God and to the people of God. And, and then when the people hear this, and he makes this little speech, you are witnesses. I want you to understand what I'm doing here. What I'm doing is I, I'm buying the land back for Naomi, and I'm going to raise up an heir for Naomi so that the land that belonged to her husband originally is not lost to the family. It continues on. And that's why the people give this incredible blessing. All the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this young woman who is coming into your house like Leah and Rachel, who both build up the house of Israel. They are the mothers of the 12 sons who are called the sons of Israel. They are the mothers of the 12 tribes out of which they grew. And that's an incredible blessing. May this woman be like that. And, of course, we know the rest of the story because the book ends this way. It tells us that, in fact, the child that was born to Ruth, whom Naomi takes and puts in her lap and uh, adopts as being her own heir by that action, and the women recognize it, they give him a name, Obed, and it says he was the father of David. In fact, Ruth was his great-grandmother, and uh, Boaz, by his act of faithfulness, was able to be a part of bearing the Messiah, bringing the Messiah eventually, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over Israel and the world forever. Now, that's, that's what's going on in this passage. And uh, what I want to ask is, how do we show our dedication to God's kingdom and God's people today? You know, it, it says in Scripture, it says in the New Testament that, Everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction. That is, even books like Ruth, they were written for our instruction. Or, or it says in, in 1 Timothy that um, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful. It's useful to us. All Scripture is useful to us for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, for guiding our lives, for conforming us to God's purposes. All scripture is useful in that way. So this story about faithfulness under the Old Testament must tell us something about how we ought to live today, and it doesn't have anything to do with marrying your brother's wife. Just want to tell you that in advance so you, you know, make sure you're not worried about that. What does it look like today for a person to be faithful to God's kingdom and to God's people? Now, I want to put up this one, which tells us about the New Testament. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is no longer an earthly territory. We do not have a national, cultural, ethnic identity. We have no central place of worship. Worship is wherever Jesus is present among his people. So when we gather, like this morning, and we worship, we make this place an outpost of the kingdom of God. In fact, every living church is simply an outpost, like an embassy of the kingdom of God. But we have no territory, no temple that we have to go to to worship. The temple is Jesus, and we become his spiritual temple when we come through him to God and worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus taught that in John 4, 21 through 24. The people of God are made up of Jews and Gentiles who accept the promises. What are the ways in which we are faithful to God? Well, let's just think about one very specific thing that is so true of people today. One of the things many people struggle with today is anxiety. 
you know, we all know what anxiety is. You know that anxiety is kind of a spectrum of things. On one end, you have anxiety that we know is important. It's a good thing to have. If you go for a job interview and you feel some butterflies in your stomach, that's a good thing, right? Because what it does is it makes you step up your game. It makes you regard everything that you're saying as being important. So you think about it before you speak to the person interviewing you in a way that you might not do if you're out of coffee with your friends sitting in a coffee shop and you're just talking. A little bit of anxiety just is helpful. If we don't feel any anxiety, sometimes we might feel a little bit concerned about it. You know? But then on the other end of the spectrum, there's anxiety that um, obviously today we know it involves a medical problem. A person who literally cannot control their thoughts and their mind interprets every single thing negatively, carries out every problem to its ultimate conclusion, which is always bad, and struggles in very deep ways. And we may be aware, I've had people in my own extended family struggle in very deep ways with anxiety. And, and uh, that is a medical problem, or at least it involves a medical problem, but you understand they're all on this sort of uh, spectrum that goes from normal, important, kind of mild sense of anxiety to um, anxiety that's very harmful to us. I don't want to think about either of the extremes as much as I want to think about what most of us, all of us probably struggle with at various points in life, and that is we uh, at various times and to varying degrees, all of us experience a concern for certain things in life that's greater than it ought to be. It's more than it, it begins to consume our time thinking about things in the future and what's going to happen. You see, when life is going well, here's how most of us function. We function thinking about the future, knowing that we ought to be concerned about it, but it's responsibility. That's an important part of life. It's not so much anxiety as I know I'm responsible. I've got these little children growing up, and, and you know, 10 years from now, will I still have the job that will allow them to live the way they, you know, they're used to and I want them to, to be safe and comfortable and all of those things? We think about those things, but if we're a Christian, we also know that God is in control of life. And as long as things are going well, God seems to be doing his work, and so we fit into responsibility. And it doesn't become anxiety in a large way, but we all know that what happens sometimes in life is things start not going so well. The child whom we're concerned about and providing for begins to stray. And as we see um, we see them do certain things when they're 8 or 9 or 10, we start to think, man, if you multiply those kinds of behaviors, by the time they get to be 15, 20, 25, it's going to be way beyond what I'm able to handle. Like I won't be able just to discipline them. It goes beyond me. It goes to teachers, coaches, police officers, judges. And, and your mind starts to go away because the child's beginning to stray. Now, what we really are doing inside, unfortunately, what we rarely recognize is we have this feeling like God's not quite coming through the way he used to. Things were going better. And, and so it was easy for me to see my responsibility because I, I knew that I could trust God with it. But now I'm not sure God's being quite as trustworthy as I want him to. So we begin to become controlling. Control is responsibility gone amok. And control is where we think, I've got to do something to make this right. And so we redouble and triple our efforts to try to make things work out the way they need to work out, not just with children, 
It can be in relationship with our spouse. It can be a coworker that we think, I've got to get rid of this person somehow. I've got to get into a different relationship with a different kind of boss. Can I get a different job? Can I make this person look bad so they get fired? I mean, what can I do? I've got to figure out some way to make this work. We become controlling. And there's two things that happen when responsibility becomes control. One is you will inevitably be disappointed. Now, I should say before that, sometimes control works, right? Sometimes you try to control something and it, it works all right. And in that case, you feel good. Like, I, see, I really am as uh, wise as I thought I was. I really knew that I needed to kind of uh, put things in this order and manipulate it in this way so that this happened. And see, it worked out that way. And then you write a book and you sell it to people and you make a lot of money. <laughs> you know, that's what Dr. Phil's all about. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, it's inevitable that you won't always succeed because control, you're trying to control something outside of your uh, ability to control in reality. You will be disappointed. When you're disappointed, then you're going to be angry. And you know who you're going to be angry with? You're going to be angry with the people who are most important to you. If you're a Christian, you're going to be angry with the people of God. If you're a Christian, you're going to come home at night. And what you've been stewing about on the way home from work is you've been stewing about all of the things that you're worried about. The job's not going so well. Business is falling off. Not so happy with the president and some of the choices he's made. Am I going to have health insurance next year? Am I going to have a job next year? You might be thinking about that, worrying about it all the way home, thinking, how can I do this or that to, to make up for that? How can I get that person that I'm trying to sell this product to to buy it and quit sitting on the fence so that I can make a living? How can I make this work? And you get home, and your daughter says to you, I need some help with my science homework tonight. And you know what you do? You get mad. That's what I would do sometimes. You get mad. And you're not mad because your daughter needs help with science. You're mad because what you're feeling inside is science project for a third grader. I've got really sick. I'm trying to control the universe. <laughs> you know? They ought to put DU on my business card, director of the universe. I'm trying to make sure that the future works out the way it's supposed to. And, and, and you're asking me, in the midst of all the burdens that I have that I've been stewing about all the way home, you're asking me to help you with your homework. Or your wife says, hey, I need you to put up the, the, the storm windows tonight. Same scenario plays out. Or you find out that your teenage son got in a minor fender bender that afternoon. doesn't matter what it is. But you get angry, and you get angry. And the reason you get angry is you're trying to do something human beings were not designed to do. The simple fact is you do have responsibility for the future, but you have no control over the future. You have no ability to control the future. Only God can control the future. Now, let's take that passage. Remember that Jesus said, I noted it at the beginning of the service, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I want to read that passage in its context so that you can kind of feel the impact of why it is he would have said that. You don't need to turn to it. It's in Matthew chapter 6, right in the, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, uh, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life 
more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those outside of the faith, he means, and by the way, he's still speaking under the Old Covenant, so Gentiles means those outside of the people of God at the point where he said this, but the, those outside, those who don't know God, who don't trust him, they seek after all these things, food, clothing, security, meaning for their life now. They're seeking after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, what he says is, God is the only one who knows the future, and God is fully aware of your needs. And God is fully capable of giving to you everything that you need in order to live. So why are you spending your time worrying about the future? Why are you spending your time trying to control the future? What does it mean to give ourselves for the kingdom of God and the people of God? It means somehow to try to lessen these concerns that we go through every day of life and recognize ultimately these things are in God's hands. I have responsibility, yes, and I seek to fulfill my responsibility, but that's a daily thing. I can't control what happens tomorrow, the next day, next week. I can't guarantee, there's nothing I will ever do that will guarantee that I'll even be alive, much less able to do the things I'm doing now. I might as well spend my energy, my affection, and my attention focused on God and his purposes and seeking to love other people with radical affection than to spend my time trying to control the future. That's what it looks like for us today to give ourselves to the kingdom of God and to the people of God. It means to give them priority, to put them first, to not stop doing those things that we usually do because life isn't quite going well and we need to redouble our efforts to make it work. To continue to seek God, continue to seek to walk with Him. Mm -hmm.